Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. Today is Sunday the 28th of February. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Michael, we will go to how you're feeling uh, in a minute, but before that I do have to apologise for there not being a show on Wednesday. I was unwell, and unlike when Michael is unwell, when I will carry the show, when I am unwell, Michael does nothing. Michael, how have you been? Dear listener, I'm not asked... I'm not, it's never even countenanced. It's not considered. Well, Michael, you can't make a carving out of rotten wood. Are you being kind of Kant there? Or are you being something like Kant, but with a different vowel? Sorry, I was reading a book of, uh, I think, Japanese idioms. There is a very famous Kant quote. It is the only quote that most of us know about Kant. He said, famously once said that you can make nothing straight out of the crooked timber of man, which is what I was referring to to Gary. But uh, maybe that wasn't... If he's saying Japanese, he's deciding to be even fancier than usual. A a fancy Kant quote isn't good enough for him now. He has to be off reading Japanese books. Actually, you know, it could have have been Chinese. I've just taken two great cultures there and just slammed them together. Uh, Well, they're all over there, aren't they? So, we will go into the new political polling that's out. We will go into the Social Democrats and the ISAG Zero Covid story as well. But we want to start, Michael, because there has been another outbreak of mostly peaceful protest. Yeah, mostly peaceful. No, I don't... I was rather disappointed that, that as far as I could see, nobody actually said that. Nobody actually made the observation that there was mostly peaceful protest. At least if they, if they did... It was kind of ironic, God. I think we're all tired of irony at this stage of our lives. But yeah, it was um, a a bunch, Gary, of inverted commas patriots gathered in Dublin um, who seemed to be annoyed about the government's policies about lockdown. Um, So, bunch of whingers, basically, I suppose you could say. Whingers and whiners. And probably all alt-right, adjacent-right, or far-right. Well, I mean, according to the guard, the commissioner, they were both far-right and far-left. Which I'm taking to mean that uh, the guard, the commissioner, is a proponent of the horseshoe theory. What we have is we have an anti-lockdown protest in Dublin. Numbers all over the place. Some people are saying hundreds. I know Ben Scallon uh, gripped was on the ground, and he said there were a couple of thousand there. But the, the problem I found there, Michael, is it's very difficult to actually estimate the size of crowds. And I haven't been able to see a single long shot of it. So I have no idea. So expect it to be somewhere between those numbers. Usually the way this works is the organisers will put out a number, the guards will put out a number, and if there was anyone on the ground, they'll put out a number. And you'll they will vary dramatically because... Uh, People have incentives, Michael. It looked like more than hundreds to me from the bits of footage, but I wouldn't have thought I wouldn't have thought thousands and thousands. But I can't figure out actually who organised it. There was clearly sort of a national party presence at it, and it looks like the yellow vests were at it as well. But the organisation seems to be sort of uh, seems to be somewhat organic and kind of grassroots. Maybe it's not. Maybe it was one of those groups or a different group. But um, I actually can't. I, ca- I can't figure out from the attention I paid to it. The yellow vests. Seriously, are the yellow vests? Are they left or right? Uh, I mean, then I'm not being. I'm not not trying to be funny here, but are, are, are they supposed to be? Are, are, or has 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 the 
has the media or the or the, the, the intelligence reached a conclusion about where we're supposed to put them in the in the spectrum? If you were to ask me about the yellow vests, and the yellow vests fall into a political space that is now commonly called far right, but is largely called far right by people who have no understanding of what they're talking about. And we've started this has popped up a lot in journalism and academia now because so many of the people in those spaces are now from very particular socioeconomic groupings and have very uh-huh. particular ideologies. The yellow vests, from what I have seen, would be in the sort of left authoritarian space or socially conservative left. They would they strike me as being the kind of people who would have voted Fianna Fáil and then would have switched to Sinn Féin before Sinn Féin kind of got quite woke on certain issues. That kind of space. So you're talking working class, anti-immigration, or at least strong uh, borders, kind of distrustful of mainstream media and of a lot of the mainstream parties, um, can be somewhat conspiratorial. And I ask because the, the, the phrase and the idea comes directly from the French, from the gilet jaune. And in France, that would have been a tradition of the left. Like Going back, you'd be too young to remember it, but these... Every so often there was a thing you'd see where French farmers, small French farmers, would, would blockade lorries coming into France from the United Kingdom carrying lamb, for example, and they'd burn, burn the, the lorries or blockade them or something. But there, while you might look at that, and if you're in an Irish situation, say, oh, small farmers from rural Ireland, they, well, obviously they're going to be sort of social conservatives and on the right. But in France, that wasn't the case. They were kind of part of a left-wing agricultural movement. With I don't know if it would, if there were either a, a touch, you said authoritarian left. I think the French, they would kind of be slightly anarchic left, but, but rural agricultural small farmer types. I just wondered if the, if there was a continuation or ideological continuation here from the Gilets Jaunes to the Yellow Vests, the same people doing similar kinds of things. I mean, I would make the point here that when I say authoritarian, I don't mean authoritarian in the way it's normally used, but rather that when you see these people grouped onto a standard left-right um, political axis, they would be in the... you would then have... that would be the... the uh, horizontal and the vertical axis would be libertarian to authoritarian, which yeah. is in itself pretty pretty political selection of where you would uh, of what you would describe that as, and yeah. these people would tend to be in in the upper left quadrant. There are a lot of Sinn Féin's voters still, but I, I, I they're routinely described as far right in the same way that a lot of populist groups are described as being a member of the far right, and I think that's because a lot of people in academia and media at the minute don't really understand that there are people who differ from them, particularly on social issues, who are not right-wing. I mean, you can see that in Gript, on on economic issues. I'd say you have me and John McGurk, who would be in the sort of more conservative economic space. Most of the other people are. My metric has always been primarily economic, and I would consider most of the people I work with to be wild (laughs) left-wingers. Yeah. But there seems to be now, because I mean, so many people in positions of, of what we've now considered to be authority, their emphasis is on the social dimension. Anyone who differs from that becomes right wing, even though like most of the like most of the pro life movement is not right wing. Even particularly the religious parts of it, they are like mostly Catholic social teaching kind of people. At, you know, at, at the most moderate sort of third way people, um, sort of that 
or maybe sorry, you know that um, social market stuff that you get in the German Christian tradition. I suppose uh, it, I think you're, it sounds like I'm, I'm correct me if I'm wrong. It's a conflation of what in other places we might just where we might distinguish between the progressive left and the traditional left, in that the traditional left from the time of Marx onwards was primarily interested in its definition of itself along economic terms and about issues like, say, ownership of the means of production to and the level of, of, of government control or government intervention in the economy and the level of redistribution of wealth within the society. That, were your, that was your primary mode of understanding your politics. Whereas the sense in the last, when a, God's hard to know, do you say 10 years, 20 years, whenever, where that has been replaced in one part of the left by an increasing lack of interest in the economic side of it and much and more in social issues. And they just, they self-describe rather as being progressive rather than left-wing. So this kind of left is not progressive. It's, kind, it's sort of paleo left. What we call paleo left? Remember, there was a thing called the paleo right, paleo conservatives. Maybe these are the paleo left. Old-fashioned left-wing. There's a phrase used called the Great Realignment. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure if the, the listener is familiar with it. We've, we've used it a bit uh, before. It used to be that the economic dimension was what defined where you were in the left or the right. And if you were authoritarian left or uh, libertarian left, you were still left. It was economic was the, the primary driving a fashion and just as you said michael a lot of that was coming from more marxist understanding of things where class economic class was very important and on the right you had a lot of opposition to the soviet union so they basically just fed into each other the great realignment effectively says that um, now it's becoming the social sphere that is becoming more prevalent and so whereas traditionally authoritarian and uh, liberal left or right would have been on the same side now it's authoritarian left, authoritarian right against liberal left and uh, liberal right. And I think that is part of the problem here. There's now different ways of seeing where people are politically. And a lot of people, particularly products of the university system, have very particular ideas of where their opponents are. We, it's, we call it the great realignment. I mean, if anybody's interested in this kind of thing, Steve Davis, the, he's the director, of, I think, educational director of the IEA. He, he writes about this and talks about this with a lot of insight and scholarship. He would make the point that th this is a this is not a a new thing. It's a cyclical thing. Like conservatism has always been about. There's always been a tension on the right and conservatives between the economic and 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 and, and, and the social, and in a sense. Both in the United, the reason we have this sense that there's this, the realignment that's happening is this really weird radical thing is because in in the lifetime of most people alive today, you had this uh, this movement which happened probably in the late sixties, both in the United States and in the United Kingdom, therefore the most important Anglophone countries, where you had a coalition between social conservatives in the United States were. In the, the Nixon strategy, spoke to social conservatives who were had been Democrats, and brought them into the into the tent. Even though, but they were the, the dominant driving force with Reagan and onwards was a, a re-understanding of economics, of free market economics, became the dominant thing. The same thing happened in Britain, whereas before that there had been a strong tradition. The tension in the nineteenth century was between Tories and the Liberals, the Whigs, and the Whigs would have been the free market 
sort of hardline free market, free trade people, and the Tories would have been kind of more doubtful about that kind of thing. But in after with Thatcher and onwards, and people like Keith Joseph, you've got this realignment. Thatcher herself was really interested in social issues. I, I, uh, it, when you look at the decriminalization of homosexuality, for example, I think in 68, I'm thinking, something like that. A, a, a number of, Tory, small number enough of Tory MPs voted for decriminalization, including Margaret Thatcher and Enoch Powell. And Powell and Thatcher, of course, were, were what they would call dry on the economic issues. And then, so, and that leads all the way through to Blair. And Blair is this moment where this economics becomes, the market economics becomes the dominant understanding on the left in the United States, in the United Kingdom also. And now we're seeing this change back. So it's all a bit, it's all, it's, as I said, it's all being a little bit confusing. But whatever about that, the, I, the far right, I don't know. The thing is about the far right, to me, the reason that the far right is used, it's always obviously used as a pejorative term. To be far right is an obviously bad thing. <clears throat> and I think that part of that Gary, would be that, isn't it the case, that historically, if you're going to be far right, far right always involves some kind of disposition towards other groups where you have a kind of a hierarchical or pyramidal worldview, that there's a superior a superiority, which is a cultural superiority and may even be a biological superiority in some sense towards others. And in an egalitarian world or democratic world, that is automatically regarded as an, an immoral and suspect, suspect position, more than suspect. It, it depends what you mean by, by far right. And we are drifting substantially off the topic at this point, I am aware. But like, if you look at the, the group most singularly associated with the far right would be the, the German Nazi party. Yes. If you look at what the Nazi party themselves were saying, the Nazi party did not see themselves as right-wing. Now, I don't mean that to say the Nazis were left-wing and the socialist in the name thing. When you actually look at what the Nazis were saying, the Nazis talk about absorbing the left and the right and designing a third way, which was outside of that. That's how the Nazis saw themselves, as something entirely separate from it. Now, that's not how they were seen by Stalin, particularly, and that influenced a lot of the, the later development of it. But they didn't see themselves as far right. They saw themselves as something, something entirely new. Well, they saw themselves as revolutionary, and I would also say, <coughs> what the, <coughs> excuse me, the Nazis. But that's all. I would say that there were certainly Nazis that saw themselves as the left. And one of the tensions throughout the thirties within the party was that the early elements of the party so, did see themselves as being of the left and felt that the party was betraying itself when it came into an agreement, when it when it started to come to an accommodation with von Papen and the Conservatives uh, to go into power in the first coalition, that there was that sense that, they, that the, these people were the wrong people and this was a betrayal of what was a, part, a party which saw itself as essentially a radical revolutionary and worker workers' party, but uh, one which was... That did that understood the world through the optic of the German nation rather than this internationalist uh, percep perception would have, which would have been the one classically used, I suppose, by Lenin and and, uh, and later Stalin. So I think there would have been elements, large elements, significant elements. Now elements which I I, just, I think that Hitler pretty well killed all of them, which you might say was a policy shift in how they saw them. But yeah, I know what you mean. They they. Um, 
they saw themselves as ultimately other. They all, they, I think they, Hitler would have seen the, this left-right thing as a, as, a, as a manifestation of decadent democ- democratic policy politics. The point I would generally make about it is it's the left-right system historically goes back to the French Revolution and where people were willing to sit in a building. Yeah. It is not an exact mixture or an exact measure of politics. And this politics has become slightly more complicated because of the nature of democracy and new ideologies being born and things have just become much more complex. It is it is a map. It was never meant to be the terrain. And what you now have a situation is people start assuming that you can actually plot courses between different political ideologies based on where they are on a political compass. And so you see things like, well, this is how people are introduced to extremism. And they will point at this incredibly mid-range left or right-wing thing and say, well, they, you know, there's a pathway from that to either put people into concentration camps or let's have a look at recreating the killing fields. And it's a weirdly prevalent view that there, that anything before those points is not actually a stop in itself. It's just a way to get further. Um, but on the actual nature of the protest itself, there was a deal of violence uh, against the Gardaí. There were obviously fireworks fired from the crowd, but I've also seen bottles spitting, um, construction fence kind of thing, like those half-height orange I think kind of a plastic fencing thrown at Gardaí and obviously those people should be arrested and punished severely. I think that's I don't think there's any disagreement with that. I didn't get Drew Harris's thing that it was the far right and the far left. The far right is obviously a bit of a construction it is it's whatever you want to put in it is your own choice but I, I would assume he considers groups like the National Party to be far right. I was having a look at the video I could see from it, and I didn't see far-left symbols. Like, I didn't see any kind of anarchist symbols or communist symbols or any, or even some of the socialist symbols. Some of the, um, and most of those groups have gone for... They've gone to zero COVID because it's a far more kind of utopian ideal, which is what they like. Um, which is not to say it's any less harmless. It's just happier about it. Coincidentally, may involve... The state having a far greater degree of coercive power. So I, I didn't really, I didn't really get his, his far left thing. Now it has pissed off a lot of people who I have to say I'm not terribly sad to see pissed off. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I just, I don't think he's. I mean, if it was there, I didn't see it. I'd be curious. I'm mean, just, a, just for a point of information, uh, is there, a, is there a, a little cohort of Gardi that whose job it is? to sit down and look at photographs of prominent faces from protests on the left and on the right in Ireland and to remember them or to follow up on the activities of these people. And therefore, at a meeting, at, at a demonstration like this, they would have had these guys wandering around or photographs being taken and they would say, oh, look, there's your guy. He, oh, he's, you know, he's, uh, he's far left, he's far left, he's right, 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 right. Oh, left, left. I, 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 I actually don't know. I don't know a lot about the guards' anti-extremism work, which is what that would fall under for the most part. Um, the only European country I'm fami- actually terribly familiar with anti-extremism work is the French, mostly because they have a brutally effective system of identifying leaders and then just waiting for them to go to a protest and then, you know, pulling them out of the crowd and occasionally beating them senseless. 
How's the French running? There's going to be a ton of stuff about this over the next couple of days, looking at who was leading it and whether it was the far right or not. Now, when people are talking about the far right, I'd be interested to see exactly who was involved. But the amount of people, if it was in the high hundreds and it, Definitely, if it goes into the thousands, that's more people than can be mobilised in Ireland by any of the far-right groups. Yes, it is. It was an interesting mix of people, certainly some that looked um, much younger and more family orientated. Although it's difficult to tell, maybe they, you know, maybe they now have that organisational capacity. My interest in this is, is this an organic growth of public frustration and resentment about the lockdowns? Or is it just a one-off kind of thing? I would suspect from what I've seen and the polling, it seems that people are getting anger. And I know we, we've talked about this before, Michael. Yeah. And you know, is there going to be something where everything is fine and then something just sets people off? And it either gets violent or it gets sort of revolutionary for a while there. And I, I don't know. I, 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 there's a lot of people unemployed. And there's a lot of people who seem to be getting quite angry about this. And so... A mass protest? No, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that is just the public. And of course, there are going to be groups who've aligned themselves with that who are going to turn up and are going to distribute literature and may try and you know, do certain things because that's how these groups will grow. I did find it interesting how strongly the political response against this was. And I think partially because this is a threat to the... The state doesn't have an alternative to what they're doing. So if you start seeing loud, recurrent calls for alternatives, I don't think they have any on hand. Well, again, we go back to whether it's a failure of policy or a failure of communication. I certainly think there have been failures of communication. But I, I, I thought it was interesting. There were a number of tweets, and let's say we shouldn't invest too much explicative or pretty power on these things, but people of the left saying, oh, these bunch of you know far-right whatevers, uh, as usual, the conservative media types will soft soft pedal this and say because you know oh, something to do with power and people being in power and defending the powerful. You know, I think that you've been making the point, Gary. I mean, about unemployment regularly. Edward. If you're on the left and you haven't noticed that you're looking at youth unemployment up at 40-odd percent and you're talking about general unemployment over 25 percent. And you don't understand that there are lots and lots of people out there with really deep economic anxiety about what their future holds and what, what, what present policy is doing to them. I think, I, I don't know what you're doing on the left. And to perceive this as being an issue about somehow being pro-large business and protecting people in power, I think that's a bizarre take on that. A couple of friends of ours were in and around this protest, I don't think necessarily say at it, but observing it, were there, they knew it was going to be happening and they became aware of it, so they went to look. They said, yeah, there were the usual suspects from one side and there were a certain bunch of couriers and whatever, but there was also, they mentioned, there were quite a number of just ordinary people there who just looked like they were really pissed off. And this happened, I don't know, was it, was it today or it happened for the first time or was it, I think it was today. Just coincidentally, maybe it was coincidentally, that Stevens, Park, Stevens Green was closed. Now, you might say, well, that's not a big deal and maybe good reasons for it. But if you're living in the middle of the city and you don't maybe have access to a large house with gardens and swimming pool and tennis court in the back. And they start to what looks like they may be beginning to close the parks. 
And I'm sure that's not the, the policy, but maybe that might be an, a momentary perception. And you're in the economic situation that you're you're in. You might start thinking, what the fuck? Did, has anybody noticed the life that I'm living? I think it is, you mentioned the polling. I think the polling is indicative of all the conversations you have with people. We have gone from being a country which had amongst the highest rates of approval of the government handling of the pandemic to not being one of the countries in Europe with the highest levels and a, a deep bubbling under dissatisfaction there. And this is married to a time when the zero COVID policy seems to be getting more traction at an official level. And not just maybe with certain elements of the government, but people outside the government, like the, like the Social Democrats are going for what they call, I think, a low COVID policy. They seem to be carefully avoiding the words zero COVID. But uh, you, there is that, uh, for, for people who are fed up, more than fed up, deeply worried, anxious about their futures, I, I can see that this kind of thing could continue. I, just briefly returning, because we don't need to get to on the left-right thing. I mean, some people seem to be doubtful that there was such a thing in Ireland as the far left. I saw Colette Brown put up a tweet that said, are there any far left groups in Ireland? And all I could think of was the creator of the 1619 Project was on Twitter recently and someone used etymology in a tweet. No, no, sorry. It, don't, don't, it was not etymology. It was worse. Worse than that. Was it epistemology? Epistemology, yeah. Oh, God, yeah. And, and she said that she had to, to Google it. Now, for the average person on the street, not knowing what epistemology means is not a, a big thing. But considering her position, and she's got an MA in journalism, it's absolutely something she should know. For, for the listener, most of you, you know this, but if you don't, it's, um, it's the theory of knowledge and, and how you know what is true and what you can know is true and just the nature of knowledge itself it is the philosophy of knowledge and knowing it's a section an area of philosophy it's a very big in 20 20th century 21st century philosophy it's one of the the biggest most important most discussed areas of philosophy but it's something that you would discuss it if you're doing a journalism degree as well and to not know it it just indicates that you do not know enough to be doing what you're doing and so for Colette Brown to come out and say are there you know, are there even any far-left groups in Ireland? It's just sort of, you don't know what you're doing. You do not know, functionally. I mean, we have we have people for profit in Parliament. You have Paul Murphy in the doll. Now, put it this way, if Paul Murphy is not of the far-left, that means the Paul Murphy must surely be of the left. I'd like to know, well, what is, what would constitute... The far left, if Paul Murphy is the left, I mean, how how populous is that group anywhere in the in the, the democratic world? Uh, there there are various legitimate communist groups active in Ireland. There are tons of them. They're all over the place. Now most of them have very little uh, influence by some of the political parties, but they're absolutely there. And if you're writing about politics, which Colette Brown does, and you don't know that, you just don't understand what you're talking about. There was one point I, I wanted to make, Michael, actually, when you were talking about jobs and economic anxiety, I think that that is part of the that is part of it because that's a massive stressor. Because in, in most countries or most civilised countries, 
the unemployment benefit you get is related to the income you had before that because you pay tax based on that income so it makes sense to give you a fraction of that as your unemployment payment because right. you're, you're paying in proportionally why would you not get back proportionally ireland doesn't do that which means once you earn above a certain level and your spending is above a certain level unemployment is basically of no help to you and you're screwed but so particularly for kind of middle class and upper people unemployment is not going to be a great help uh, for you but that's i think only part of it there's also the social aspects of it work gets people meeting people it gives people something to do it gives people a sense of control and ownership over what they're doing as opposed to just having to survive because the government just gives you money which many people find um demeaning or you know it, it kind of cuts into them a bit so you you don't just have a lot of people under economic stress. You have a lot of people who will have got most of their socialization removed because they lost their job and they can't go more than 5K and they can't meet people. What are they doing? With less purpose in their life because they feel they have less control over it. And that just seems like a recipe for anger and resentment. And anger and actually resentment particularly tends to end poorly if enough people in a society start to feel it at once. It doesn't lead to moderate politics. No, and I mean, as I said, I'm just interested to see if we start seeing more things like this, not not violence towards guards, obviously, which, which should never happen. Um, but if we start seeing more anti-lockdown protesters, I don't think the government has a response. I don't think it's in control enough to come up with a response. Well, yeah, I kind of agree. I, I do think there is a response. Uh, not a not particularly original, but the obvious response is to declare war in a sense and to visibly increase the speed at which we engage in the process of vaccinating the population i mean that might sound glib but i think that that would give people at least a sense that something was happening that something was being done as that every possible effort was being uh, engaged in order to achieve that thing which will ultimately lead to their freedom and to a return to the normal life. Whether it's fair or unfair, I think there is a perception that up to now, and I think it is fair, that the government has failed to do that. It has failed to give the sense that this is a country on war footing, dedicating all of its energies and all of its resources to ensuring that all of its citizens are protected by vaccination, or all, at least all of those citizens willing to be vaccinated are protected by vaccination in as short a period of time as possible. I think that would go to, that would go to some way towards assuaging people's sense of anxiety, at least that it would give them a sense that there is an end to this. Because a lot of the discussion recently has been framed in terms, even after that, in terms of, well, it'll be in June or July or whenever. And now that that language has started to change, and that's a good thing, that they're, they're, they're shortening the timeframes. But... We hear other people saying, oh, well, you know, the vaccination isn't going to be the end of itself. Vaccine isn't going to be some kind of golden bullet. We're, we're still going to have to deal with this and this is going to go on. We're going to have restrictions. And and I, other than that, I kind of don't get that. Once you reach a certain point in the population, once you have protected people like me and then the other vulnerable people, you know, the older, over 65s, and once you've got hospitalization controlled and you've got you've reduced your uh, fatality levels by 99%, which would happen if you, I think, was it over over 50s and vulnerable people? It's down by 99% or something, is that the number? But massively reduced anyway. Why that would not mean substantial real changes to the way we live 
is at the moment escaping me. So I think there there is there is something the government can do. It can change. It can get better at talking to people. It can communicate better, and it can actually do something. Fit actually do something to create a sense of a nation which is, as a, I know it's a cliche, but a nation that is on a war footing against this vaccine in defence of its citizens. I have noticed just from just from walking around the place for exercise, particularly where I live, and I've talked to a couple of other people just to get a sense of it, and it may not be incomplete. It may just be the people I'm talking to live in particular areas. There are way more people out and about the place than there were particularly in the first lockdown compliance has to have fallen the difference between the first lockdown and now is palpable i think we all remember that experience of driving down the street in the first lockdown of our, our, our towns and cities and seeing oh it, it, it had that feeling of the day after the bomb went off there was just nothing there was nobody there was no traffic. There were no people walking around. It was a different. It just felt that that doesn't happen anymore. That's not. Uh, that's not the the vibe at all. So just on on public compliance, because public compliance is a core part of the the kind of zero strategy, uh, zero COVID strategy. So on the um, on the zero COVID strategy, the group primarily pushing it in Ireland is ISAG. Um, and I published a series of stories on ISAG, obviously, last Friday. To date, not a single member of ISAG has denied anything I wrote, or actually even acknowledged anything I wrote. No one has asked them in the mainstream media anything about it, or at least that I've heard and that has produced um, a story. So, f- for those who aren't aware of it, what I had... I. I was leaked a significant amount of their internal documents, hundreds upon hundreds of pages... And there were parts where they were saying that we've decided to review and internalize Sololinsky's rules. And they had Sololinsky's rules and then they had additional lines like we've got to look for or sorry, look for ways to increase uh, uncertainty, anxiety and something else. Then I also published stories um, that they had said things to the Taoiseach that they couldn't stand over, that they had... Uh, put together a meeting plan where they had said they would tell the Taoiseach something and then in brackets said this may or may not be true but it gives him the chance to come behind our policies. Stuff like that. And then there was also some stuff with the Social Democrats where they had they met with the Social Democrats they met with Roshin Shortall and the policy director and it was a really good meeting that kind of convinced the Social Democrats to come on board. The Social Democrats had a couple of final questions and one was how many cases do you need to get this to before you can start reopening the country? And the woman that they had met from ISAG told them 10. But when they had an internal discussion about it, ISAG, the the line that she got from one of the uh, founders of ISAG, because she had asked, you know, is 10 actually the right number? He said, well, it was five in Victoria in Australia. But if we can get them to buy into 10, we'll grab it and we'll renegotiate en route. Which to me, Michael... Yeah. Sounds like, tell them a number they'll buy into, then they'll publicly commit to it, then they can't back out because that's massively humiliating. Just on that, the Social Democrats today called on the government to set a target of 10 COVID-19 cases per day in order to avoid another lockdown. Yes, that's, that's right. But I, 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 there's, there's the ISAC story, and I, th- I think it's interesting because they're not acting like a disinterested health body. They're acting like an advocacy group, and... 
I have probably read more ISAG communiques than most of the people inside ISAG, considering how many emails they send. And my sense of them after reading everything is that this is a group of well-meaning, intelligent people who have become fixated on an idea. And when you see them saying things like the, the amount of times they're using words like enemy, um, you know, attack people, increase uncertainty. And then these people are being called on constantly into the media to talk about, well, how many deaths will there be? How effective will the vaccine program be? And we've seen the damage that uh, certain lines of talking about the vaccination projects can have in France and Germany. And I'm not suggesting that ISAG are, are doing that. But surely, if you know this is a group that said these things, it would at least be worth asking them the fucking question of, would you comment on that before you tell us about what you think about the vaccination program? Like, did you say that? And in nine days, no one has asked them. But they've been on many, many media programs. And I think at this point, considering they haven't denied it, the things I wrote about them, if they weren't true, would be incredibly defamatory. I mean, I would be screwed if that went to court and I couldn't stand over it. Right, yeah. And, you know, no one has to respond to any sort of story. But if instead of, like, if I incredibly badly defame someone and they just go totally silent about it, you would think you would at least say, I didn't do that. Or, you know, maybe get a little bit angry. Not just go totally silent. Now... Michael, I, I do know a couple of, of media sources reached out to Grips for some of the documents and yes, uh, to see what could be said. And it has a... Uh, I have not been impressed by the rigour and the, uh, the speed which Ireland's traditional media has been going about this. Because in nine days, like in nine days, you can build a nearly impenetrable PR strategy. <laughs> okay. Because you have, you can spend the entire time, and ISAG have had professional PR people involved with them before. So if you had, like, Michael, if you had a crisis, and then you were just given nine days at least to deal with it, by the end of the nine days, you would have every one of them drilled and ready to go, and your stories are the same, and this is exactly what you say, and this is exactly how you say it. Except, Gary, if you had nine days to deal with, with a crisis, you don't have a crisis anymore because nine days in a news cycle is, it's three news cycles, and two, three news cycles. It's no longer a story. If you can succeed, I, I had expected, we had talked about this before on the podcast and all, I had said to you, I didn't expect that it would appear in the papers, but I did think that because it was getting such traction in social media and because this, it's such a good story anyway, you say they're not an ad, they're, they're, they, they appear like uh, they're not a disinterested. They are an advocacy group, and I don't think they have a problem being ad, admitting they are an advocacy group. They absolutely believe in what they're saying. I don't think they're making this up. I don't think this is some kind of a cruel, sadistic plan they've decided to inflict upon the Irish people for the sake of their entertainment. They they believe this is the approach to the the, the approach that we should adopt to the pandemic. There are problems with this. There are regarding the numbers and the timing and the economics and all, all sorts of issues regarding the lack of a detailed plan about it. Um, and also at this stage regarding the nature of the virus and its spread within the community and 
etc etc we, we discussed that before but yeah what they've said they said to the what they've done it would appear any what they've done with the social garments is they have they've bought in they said okay we'll set we'll, we'll take 10 five is actually what the victoria protocol requires but we'll take 10 and then as things go we can renegotiate once we've bought we've got them to buy into the thing then they'll be bought in and they won't be able to escape and that's their that seems to be the more general approach because this in in conversations that they seem to have had gary if i remember with the with leo Varadkar and with the Taoiseach, they have said things which perhaps weren't necessary that they they gave dates regarding lockdowns and finishing lockdowns and opening up again which they they didn't actually feel they could really stand behind but they felt that they were useful in in the narrative in the story that they were telling because they feel that they what they, they have to do is sell this narrative because this is the only way that's going to work and they're going to have to be disingenuous at, if we're going to be the, at our kindness in order to sell this but they have to sell it because this is the only way they have an absolutely profound belief in this being the case and that has led them to behave in a way which is how would one say at times less than frank i i don't i don't think they can stand over quite a lot of what they say i think they believe what they're saying is correct but I think if you actually sat down with them and a detailed point by point of how this works, I think there is like a little bit where it's just magic result. Two fundamental issues. I mean, there are lots and lots of issues we could say technically. But if you remember the conversation we had with a representative from ISAG on this podcast, I, I made a number of points. And I don't, I, 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 I tried to be as fair minded as I could. And the guy was, to be fair, he was very honest and very open. Oh, upfront about the position he was very straightforward with us it assumed two things it assumes a level of competence in the application and rollout of this from the government which i think is at the very least optimistic and it assumed a level of compliance with the general population which i think you have no reason at this time to expect you're talking about we, we were a minute ago we we're talking about you know changes in compliance there was a tweet that i noticed a, a few days ago from bb baskin i don't know do you remember bb baskin people of my generation will remember bb very well i have no idea what's happening B.B. Baskin was a very popular TV presenter uh, from, I think she's, she's a Gaelic goer from Donegal, and she was on RT quite a bit as, as a tea prefect in a time. Very nice, very nice lady. And she's a very, very typical, and she tweeted this out. When people who normally wouldn't park on a double yellow line for a minute to say, to hell with this 5K anymore, it makes me think that there's a shift in opinion. That person is me. Where are you at? Now, that's just one tweet. But I think it's, it is, it's symbolic it's indeed of something. Yeah, B.B. Baskin, who is absolutely that person who wouldn't, who would never, ever dream of parking in the handicapped space. She wouldn't dream of parking on the double yellow line even for a minute. She's saying, when I've reached the point when I'm saying, to hell with this 5K, where is everybody else? And I think that's a, that, that's indicative of something. When people like BB are saying that, that is indicative that there is a wider, there, there's, there is a problem with compliance. And zero COVID, amongst all of the other questions you can ask about, it's the length of time it's going to require and the possibility of actually achieving it w without just isolating the country completely and 
the level of economic damage and how do you plan to come out of it and so on and so forth. It, it demands a level of compliance to the population. It assumes a level of compliance to the population, which I just think is unreasonable. It's not there. No, and I, I think the thing there is that people have been saying, well, we had zero COVID, but we lost it in the first year. Yeah. I, I don't think that's true. I think you would have got the public compliance required to do it. But I think then you said there are two major problems. I think there are multiple major problems with it. It'd be great if it worked. Because if it worked, then you could argue that actually it's a shorter lockdown than we'd have otherwise. But having read, as I said, probably more of ISAG's internal communications than most members of ISAG, I have absolutely no faith that they could plot something, or that anyone could plot something, that would work to the level they require. The, the plans they have, if a single incident breached what they had and got into the country, the openness of the country could mean it would spread like wildfire. Yes. It would be catastrophic if it got in. And that, I think, is the problem. You're, you're building something that needs perfect compliance, perfect compliance, or has potentially catastrophic consequences. It's, it's, it, is, it is ironically a very fragile model. It's incredibly fragile. It's not sustainable unless COVID is gone from all around the world. But I, I don't really want to debate no, the, no. The, the issue. On this, ISAG should be questioned on this. And I don't think other media have any of the material, bar the media who reached out to us, and we sent them enough to verify what we had written. But at the same time, all you have to do is call these people, and they've been doing the rounds in media for months. Everyone has their numbers. Just call them and say, did you say this? That's all you need to do. You don't need to do anything else. If they either will admit they wrote it or will not deny that they wrote it, well, then you have a story, even if it's that, you know, ISAG founder um, you know, will not deny whatever. You can make it into a story. And the same way, if you're having these people onto your show to talk about vaccine programs or about what they think about the government... They had sent out minutes of a meeting which said the group had agreed that they need to review and internalise a document which included the phrase, look for ways to increase anxiety and uncertainty. Surely, just in your basic due diligence, if you were having them on your show or giving them a spot on um, in print or whatever, you would ask them about that. Because if that is the case, and they've said they want to do that, and then you give them something, to allow them to do that, that, that is a, a shocking dereliction of what should be basic safeguards. And the fact that the Irish media... Ugh. If nothing else, how much pap and pablum have we heard about mental health issues in the pandemic? How much talk have we heard about how we need to care about people who are vulnerable, people who have who may be suffering from depression, people who are feeling isolated, people who are feeling any, all sorts of issues regarding mental health. And this group is saying explicitly, we need to increase fear, anxiety, and insecurity in the population. <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the line of many things that I am not, I am not a psychotherapist, but it's my suspicion that no, broadly speaking, psychotherapists, psychotherapists would not advocate increasing people's levels of senses of insecurity anxiety as a, as a, as a as a positive in maintaining good mental health 
think about what we're seeing. We're seeing increased levels of anger and resentment in the pollings. We've got a massive amount of people who have no job, massive amount of free time, no socialization, and you want to jack up their anxiety as well. So you have a load of anxious, angry and resentful people. And do you think that will produce a good result in the end? Because that just sounds like a powder keg. And whatever, maybe Isaac say, whatever, they have a reason for it. They should at least be fucking asked to explain it. And the fact that, like, I have said some terribly negative things about the Irish media. But this is, like, beyond the pale level of of nonsense. You don't, you don't need to crucify them. Just ask them to explain it. You know, without being excessively po-faced here, there's, to me, there's also a pretty serious moral question. Um, it has always seemed to me that the basic test of morality of the people in public life, or in any way, is the difference is if you is whether or not you use another human being or regard how you regard other human beings. Do you regard them as a means to your end, or do you regard them as an uh, an end of themselves? And it seems to me that in this case, and I'm thinking of a couple of people that I know, particularly in this case, people who I know, and I'm, this is not, this is not Andy Kenny meeting people to a man in a pub with two pints. This is these are people that I know, who are are suffering dreadfully from anxiety at the moment because of this. People who struggle maybe with depression at times, but have really are really really struggling with their anxiety. And I've been saying to them. Don't spend your time every half hour checking what the numbers are and the deaths and the cases and where, who and what, who broke and who went and walked to Dollymont Strand and put your life at risk even though you live 300 miles away. Approach this policy, whatever we want to call it for my sake, is using, their, the, is using these people as a means to, an, to their end. And they may say, well, you know, the end justifies the means because the, the end is... A very is is going to be a, a, a the great is massively the greater utility for the the greater number of people, and that's fine. But I just I think that it for me this is deeply immoral because you're using people, and you're using people who are frightened and and anxious, and, and in a very very bad way in order to to achieve your your ends. And you you may feel justified in that, but I think that if you're going to do that, by God, you better have your plan worked out and how you better have it. You better have it watertight in a way which I don't believe they're anywhere near having it, Gary. I mean, here's, here's one thing, Michael. For all people talk about COVID misinformation and things like that, Jerkily, who's one of the founders of ISAC, turned up before uh, Christmas. Sorry, this was in, um, this was around June of last year. And he said... When you remember the government eased their first restrictions in around yeah. June, he said that that could kill sixty thousand people. Yeah. Now you have statements like that. You have documents which explicitly say, "Review and internalize. Look for ways to increase anxiety," and you still can't bother to just ask them the fucking question. And maybe they have a good answer. Maybe, but we haven't heard it yet. And for all of this, like, it's one of the common complaints about GRIP I've seen from this story being put forward. It's that GRIP is not a trusted source, that it's a source of misinformation of COVID-19. I've seen people say that I'm anti-mask, anti-vaccine, anti-whatever. 
which kind of just shows they have nothing, you know, no idea what they're talking about. Because if anything, from the amount of irritated emails I get from people, I am too pro-mask and too pro-vaccine and talk about them too much. We didn't, we didn't give, you know, 30 media spots to these guys <laughs> like Matt Cooper did. Yeah. We haven't had them on talking about vaccine uh, programs. We haven't given them titles that they didn't earn because we actually didn't realize what their specialities were and that they're experts in things, but they're not experts in a lot of what they're talking about. I mean, Tomas Ryan, who is one of their major spokesperson, his actual expertise is in neuroscience. It's in memory. This is not someone with an expertise in the field. But And so I will have after this a much shorter stick with the whole misinformation on grip thing, because let me tell you, we've had ISAG on once. And I think that was one of the most comprehensive interviews with a member of ISAG I've ever heard. Justin, how does your plan work? It wasn't, tell me for 20 minutes about the concerns you have with the vaccine program. So this has just been a nonsense, which actually may explain why it's not getting much coverage. Because if questions suddenly arise about ISAG and, you know, your network has had them on day after day after day after day. Well, that doesn't look great for you, does it? And it's never the mainstream media which should be accused of disinformation. It's always smaller competitors. Well, yeah. that would be, I mean, it, if a question was to arise about ISAG, Michael, uh, and some sort of disinformation, that would appear to have been aided by the most respectable elements of the Irish press, largely without question, for months, a year in some cases. And I don't know if you saw the Irish Times there today. They did a piece on COVID celebrities, Michael. I did, yes, I did, I did. It was lovely. COVID celebrities. The, the life of an Irish COVID celeb. They, three people. Luke O'Neill, who's not a member of ISAC. Aoife McLeisett, who is. And Sam McConkie, who is. Now, Aoife McLeisett, when I was talking there about the, the sock dems, Aoife McLeisett was the person who was dealing with the sock dems. And it's just a puff piece on these people and how they are now celebrities. It's nonsense. It would be nonsense at the best of times. But now it's, I know that people in the Irish Times have read the stories that I put out about Isaac, and I know a number of them have read it enough that the fact that they published a puff piece is a bit of a worrying sign. You know, it is a bit of a worry where the serious media thinks that the most important questions to ask people in this at this moment are whether or not they wear boxers or briefs and what their favourite Beatles albums is, are. No, they didn't ask that, but you know what I mean. That was effectively what this was, you know. Uh, who's your, what's your favourite sitcom? I mean, it, it is, it's not serious. It's not serious. And at a time, at a time, Gary, which is kind of serious. I mean, I, I have, for all I say negative things about the Irish, I subscribe to nearly every newspaper in this country that has a paid subscription. I subscribe to actually an incredible amount of news media in general. And for all I criticise them, it's on the basic presumption that they are interested in doing a good job. This is the first thing I've actually run into it in a while, pretty much since the abortion referendum, which has made me think collectively they're just shit at their jobs. Not even that they're ideologically driven, that they're just bad at their jobs. Now, obviously, if you're doing, like, let's say there are some reporters looking into this who are looking to source the documents, who are looking to do more work, 
I was like, okay, that might take the time. But that wasn't necessary for the basic stories here. Literally all you had to do was call them. And considering they're still appearing on media, it's, you know, they're still answering some people's calls. It's probably just me they've all stopped picking up to. Yeah, I think it's a certain amount of screen, uh, call screening going on there. Anyway, I mean, it, it, it is what it is. I hope to, I hope we see something in the Irish media on it uh, soon. And if we don't, well, you know, they can just, the next time they try and talk about misinformation or the importance of standards, well, you can just kind of tell them where to go. Um, on control of media, Michael, small thing um, before we get onto the poll. Amazon. Amazon have removed a couple of books from sale. And you might say, well, what the fuck do I care if Amazon has removed a couple of books from sale? It's this. If your book cannot be sold on Amazon, I would expect there are quite a few publishers who won't publish your book to begin with. Unless you're in like a niche publishing kind of space. It is the largest seller of books. It is an actual behemoth. And to have uh, your books removed from it is in many cases... your book simply will not be published and your next book might not be published because what if the same thing happens? Now, this has happened to a couple of books recently. Almost all of them have been about transgenderism in some way. The latest book uh, that happened to was Ryan T. Anderson's When Harry Became Sally, which was a response to um, the transgender movement. Now, Ryan Anderson is with the... um, I think he's with Heritage, is he? Yeah, he's with Heritage, Heritage Foundation. He's a fellow. Well, he's he's a, he was. I don't know if he still is. He's a, he was with the Heritage Foundation. He's I'm not sure if he still is, but yeah, he's conservative. He may be gone now. I mean, he is eminently respectable uh, in every way. He's not some sort of foaming at the mouth, shouting bigot. I actually have not read when Harry became Sally, but from the reviews I've seen and from just knowing of. Anderson in general, I would be very doubtful that there'd be anything in it that would cross any line. And yet Amazon said, we're just not going to stock it. In the same way they've said to other books, we're just not going to stock them. Oh, what a common theme. Amazon are saying that they are breaching a new policy on hate speech. Yeah, it's a worry, isn't it? When you have... Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's because how do you respond? It's a private company, they can choose to stock or not stock whatever they want on the face of it and they are choosing not to stock this but but yeah but practically speaking as you say i mean if you're in the business of writing books or more specifically you're in the publisher selling books you're a publisher <laughs> what's the reasons you t- you accept a book is because you think oh this may actually sell copies that's pretty basic. That's the first thing you're going to ask yourself when you, you're going to pay somebody, you're going to go to the business of putting print on paper. And if you're thinking, well, there's a very, there's a chance that Amazon won't sell this. Well, then where am I going to sell it? It's not, there are bookshops, true. But increasingly, Amazon is where you sell your books. And if they're not going to sell it, also, there's a knock-on. I mean, if Amazon don't sell it, that's kind of establishes establishes a certain point, doesn't it, in the market? And that means that everybody else who sells books is going to have to make a decision. They're going to be, in a sense, asked, well, are you selling this book? Are you going to? Yeah, what's her name? I can never get her name right. 
um, Schreier, Schreier, Abigail Schreier. She wrote that book, The Trans Trans Craze of Seducing Our Daughters. I think it was. Uh, now, if you remember, there was a big hoo ha about that. Um, it was when it went into a bookshop in I can't remember San Francisco or Los Angeles. It, there were protests about it every day, and it was taken off the shelves in Target. I think Target then put it back on. I think they, they restored it. But that's that's the space we seem to be getting into. Now, this is a very particular area, Gary, as we know. It is an, it is a, a, an absolute minefield trying to negotiate the politics of uh, the transgender issue has become incredibly tricky. It is a there is an advocacy group on one side, which is very vocal, very organized, very well placed, and they do not brook dissent. And hate speech is the principal tool that they use to shut down that dissent. Amazon operates at such a scale that its its decisions have, in general, I would say businesses don't have to deal with anyone they don't want to, for any reason, bigoted or otherwise, and if you don't like it, go to a competitor. The problem, of course, becomes when there is no competitor, or there is effectively no competitor. And given the size of Amazon in the book market, if you are in any way trying to make money, if you are in commercial book releases, there is no competition. Their refusal to deal with you effectively means your book will most likely not be published, at least not at the when you're dealing with the scale of a book that someone like Anderson would be dealing with. These would not be niche titles. These would be bestsellers. But uh, no, it's just, it's, it's still developing. Uh, a lot of senators have written to Jeff Bezos to know why the book was pulled and exactly what's there. But if Amazon were to start having a more proactive, a more, shall we say, advocate-based uh, approach to what it sells, then uh, that could be something that has legitimate and extensive real-world consequences. And in general, I mean, you'd say, well, if it stops selling it, then it creates the market for someone else, and that, you know, sows the seed of its own destruction and creative destruction and blah, 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 all the, all the usual good stuff. Companies like Amazon and Google, to a certain extent, are so large that the amount of damage they can do before a competitor becomes viable is incredible. Yeah, that, and that's something that we have to take into account. Uh, <clears throat> historically, people like me would have been skeptical of the idea of a naturally uh, a naturally occurring private monopoly. Um, we would go back to the decisions made, you know, say in the United States, the antitrust decisions which broke up, say United or United Steel. Back uh, in in what was nineteen tens was nineteen teens in the United States and the, the antitrust laws that developed, which were then re reevaluated by the Chicago School, uh, Chicago School both economics and law in the sixties and seventies, and it led to a new understanding of trust. It may be that we're now dealing with a new reality regarding actually that it's not that you can't. What we've seen from police, as you say, from things like Google and certainly possibly like Amazon is, it's not that you can't 
create an alternative, but rather that if there is an alternative, they have the capacity to come in and just buy you and close you down. I mean, at, at its crudest, at the crudest, they can just come and close you down if that's what they want to do. The amount of cash, the amount of economic power that these groups have is so massive that the likely, at, at least it would seem at this point, the likelihood of somebody getting big enough to be able to actually challenge them seriously seems to be difficult. But on the other hand, there are other, there are plenty of other places you can buy books online uh, when I do, but I don't know. It's it's a hard one. And this is one of the issues we've been talking about before, about free speech. One of the issues is not, it, where where is the biggest threat from, from speech? Historically, we've always assumed the biggest threat from free speech would come from the state the state deciding to change the definitions of, of what constituted correct free speech or legitimate free speech and the, the, and what, what was saved and what was unsaved. There is now, I would say, I was talking to an American lawyer recently, he said, you know, if he talked to his friends five or six years ago, they would have, as to, to a man or to a woman, would have said, oh, no, the state is the enemy, the state is the danger. Today, they would say, that they are far more concerned, not about free speech, but rather, uh, the phrase he used was access to the marketplace of speech. So it's play things like Amazon, but also things like Facebook and Twitter and whatever, that provide the forums where speech occurs. So both the, the publications that contain the speech, but also the places where people discuss that speech or express themselves. The extent to which private companies have ownership of those spaces and can corral them and can control them is increasingly a concern. It just strikes me, I mean, it's fairly obvious irony to this that once upon a time, not that long ago, because it was certain within my lifetime, Ireland was a country where we had fairly rigorous censorship of, uh, of books. And if you you read accounts of the time, they say that one of the things that it was classically that the, the pattern was a lot of books would come in and, and would would bypass the censor. The censor would just choose not to look at them, and they would maybe go into the library system somewhere. And a lot of books would just be out there, just nobody would. But then occasionally somebody would read a book and object to it because of obscenity or blasphemy or something. And that, at that, at that, at that moment, you, you, you had to make an active decision. And it would actually have to be refused. And then, in, again and again, in these cases, the censor would then censor the book because they, and it would be removed from, I, removed from the libraries and perhaps removed from circulation within the country because they'd had, they'd been asked to, rather than tacitly just to permit it, they were being asked to endorse it as not obscene. But that was the position of the right. That was, that was the religious right, the conservative right, controlling speech. Now we live in a world where it's the conservative right is marching up and down, demanding free speech for everybody. And it's the liberal left which is controlling speech. It's just one of those large inversions of history, which, if nothing else, should tell people that history doesn't go in straight lines. I, I, I don't think it's an inversion as such. I think the way to understand it is that groups who feel they're in the minority's um, position in yes. relation to particular areas of, of social power will attempt to widen freedoms in that area 
And then, of course, when they become dominant, then the natural trend is to curtail it because you're dominant and freedom of speech is a threat to you because the more easily ideas can be discussed, the easier it is for ideas to change. And I think that's just the, the natural thing. For all that it is the right now, I hold no illusions that the right is any more committed to this in the long term Absolutely. than the left. Absolutely. Absolutely it's simply not. because yeah, it's very easy to see why something needs to be the case or you know, is an important right when it is under threat to you or is restricted in some way or you can see the restrictions. The censor is always the friend of the powerful. But you see that with any right. I think when you look at things like the right to private property, when you look at the right to free association, when you look at any sort of economic or social right, it's when those things become simply accepted, there's no threat to them, that you start seeing people talk about how they're, they're not actually necessary or they can be circumscribed because they don't realize that historically when those rights have been circumscribed, it's tended to go in very particular directions, pretty consistently. Not always, not, but no, I know. I think I think you're right. I mean, as a general principle, that's just you. Know, once you, you you once you take once you take the castle, you, you you lift up, you lift the drawbridge, and you want to make sure you can, and that will lead to delimiting delimiting rights which you might otherwise have. Found. I do think if we we do live in a in a peculiarly ahistorical age, Gary, I think that there is a there are a couple of generations growing up who have a more limited sense of the past than we've seen for quite some time. And therefore, they seem to live in the present in a, in a really weird way. But the Amazon thing is developing, may go somewhere, may simply be that they'll back down. But it seems to be part of a trend of the increasing willingness of companies to involve themselves in the political arena. And to do so in very particular ways. And we will see where that goes. We shall watch with care. Yeah. And you know, Michael, you know, if you don't like it, you can set up your own social media. And if you don't like when Amazon takes that offline, you can uh, create your own uh, cloud hosting software and servers. And if something happens to that, Michael, you can create your own internet. So, Michael, the political poll that we have seen uh, just out now. It's a Red Sea poll, I think. Um, not a lot of... I'll run through the movement on it. So you have Sinn Féin 29, plus 2. Fine Gael 29, no change. Fianna Fáil 13, minus 3. Social Democrats 6, plus 1. Uh, Labour Party 4, plus 1. Green Party 3, minus 2. Solidarity, Solidarity People Before Profit 2, minus 1. Into 2, no change. Independence and Others... 12 plus 2. Now, not a lot of movement on the poll. Interesting to see Fianna Fáil continuing to trend downwards. Interesting to see Green Party trend downwards. What I find most interesting about this poll, Michael, is this. Is Fine Gael no movement? And I've noticed this in a couple of the, the other polls as well. Fine Gael are holding relatively steady. Yeah, uh, I, I tell you the thing I find odd is... In the last number of days, last few days, I've talked to three people, three, three people you take seriously. I mean, none of us are, you know, Mystic Meg, but two of them Fine Gael, one of them some, someone involved in and around the business of politics in a number of parties for quite a long time. All three of them said to me, out of no particular reason, absolutely, oh, by the way, Leo Varadkar will never be Taoiseach again. And I, t- I was also having a conversation with someone and he just out of the blue said the same thing. 
And I asked him about it, and he just said he just the way things are going, it just wasn't going to happen. But I mean, with the way things are going, Finnegale are um, are not in a bad position, and the government would have to collapse to stop Leo from being Taoiseach. I mean, the only problem I can see from even if there's a new election is um, you know. Who do you want to dance with, basically? I, what I don't get is, it seems to me, and it has seemed to me for a while, is that Leo, I think, is doing a, a bang-up job. I think Leo's been doing a better job now than he, he, he was previously. Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays, he's, he's, he's the tarnished and stout defender of the government. And then on Tuesdays, Thursdays and Saturdays, he's leader of the opposition. He's doing this tap dance. I think he's doing really well. I think he looks fresh and dynamic and decisive. And he he seems to have, a, he seems, he's displaying a sense, a little bit of what's happening in the country. And he, 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 he has a sense of the mood. He looks far better than, than Michal. Although God love him, decisiveness is not Michal's strongest point these days. And Michal does have a few years on him, which is, so it's not surprising. So, for me, if if you take into account the most recent opinion polls regarding the government's handle of the pandemic, and put that in the context of the fact that until not that long ago, satisfaction with the government's handle of the pandemic was one of the strongest in Ireland of any country in Europe, and that has changed significantly. And yet, Finnegale have are on no change. I, if I were in Finnegale, I would take that as a win. So I don't understand this. I'm curious about it. I'm not discounting. I'm not. The fact that these people have said this makes me wonder: Am I what, am I missing something, or do they have a sense that that things are are beginning to turn and go bad? And okay, Finn Fáil are getting it at the moment because Michal is Taoiseach, but everybody is going to get it before this is over. That everybody who's in the who's in power now is is going to end up getting it in the neck. Sinn Féin only up two. Um, you were thinking if there was going to be some kind. I've heard people. Talk about Sinn Féin getting a pandemic over a majority. Now, that seems to me to be cloud cuckoo land. But God, if we live in the funny times. I don't know. I would have thought that Sinn Féin would hope to be doing a little bit better than that. But uh, it's Social Democrats up one on six is interesting, I think, actually. It, it is, particularly when you compare. I mean, their election result was 2.9. Yeah. So I, I would also make the point, and I know we, we make this, or I try and make this most of the time we're looking at polls. These are national polls. There are certain parties that that's very important for, like Fianna Fáil, uh, Fine Gael, you know, Sinn Féin at this point. But for the likes of the Social Democrats, uh, Solidarity, People for Profit, they don't need 6% nationally. What they need is they need a certain level of support in key areas. Although actually, with the Social Democrats up to about 6%, they're now looking at branching out much more. The only the only number you really don't want to fall below if you're a small party is 2%. Because if you're under 2%, you don't get state funding, as Ain2 found out last time. Yeah. But I, yeah, 6% with the Irish. I have seen the maths on this, but it was ages ago. There is a percentage in polls when you get over you can start looking realistically at winning and a fairly decent spread across the country. Before that, doesn't matter if you're, you know, 2%, 4%, whatever. It's how many seats are you going to win? And that requires very strong candidates. You don't want a situation where you're kind of popular across the entire country, but you win no seats because there's no concentrations of power. Getting 2% in every constituency ain't going to do you a whole lot of good. 
to get you the money. But other than that, it's not going to get you a TD. Yeah, so, I mean, Social Democrats have gone from 2.9 to 6. Labour has gone from 4.4 to 4. Um, I mean, together you're looking at 10%. You're looking at basically Fianna Fáil. Yeah. Now, the one thing I would caution there is, it's it's not so much an issue with Labour, I would say, but a lot of the votes seen by the other parties, the other left-wing parties during the last election, was due to Sinn Féin. I'm not going to say making a strategic error, because... Sinn Féin had no way of knowing they were going to perform as strongly as they did, but they didn't run enough candidates for the result that they could have gotten. And so you saw a lot of the left-wing parties picking that up. That's why I would expect, for all the agitation, the left-wing parties desperately do not want the government to fall. Because once it falls, and instead of running one candidate, Sinn Féin starts running two in a lot of these constituencies, and it will with this level of polling, these guys are just going to be wiped out. They need as much time as they can to bed those candidates in. Yeah, you end up they, they end up getting seats rather than they, which were which they wouldn't have expected on the vote that they got mm. because of the transfers. There were these massive transfers coming down the line from Sinn Féin TDs getting like fifteen, sixteen thousand first preferences. So there was almost a quota available. Sometimes it's half a quota available for redistribution, mostly going to the left. I'd like to see the poll with the undecided still in it. Yes. What is Fianna Fáil's actual core vote? Yes. Because I think you're looking at about 10, 11%. I don't want to sound like I'm flogging a dead horse here because uh, it might seem like I had some kind of personal animus against Michal Martin, which I don't. We could fairly definitely say that in 2011, Fianna Fáil's core vote was around 17%. That was the core vote because they got 17%, it was 17%, wasn't it, in the 2011 election. And that was an election when there weren't any doubters voting Fianna Fáil. There were no, there were no sort of will I, won't I voters. If you were voting Fianna Fáil in 2011, you were a Fianna Fáil voter, cub hell or high water. What would have to be a concern is that to see a decline in your core vote of the nature that has happened over the 10 years that Michal Martin has been leader of Fianna Fáil. Now, you could say that there's a certain demographic trend in there, that the average age of the Fianna Fáil supporter is higher than other parties, certain, their average age of their activists is higher, so therefore that core vote was going to contain older voters and therefore it was there was going to be a certain natural demographic slippage over 10 years yeah that's fine but that does not explain a, a drop in seven percent in your core vote and you're down to 13 percent which is not your which is which is with adjusted for don't knows ah oh, that that's to me that's an irretrievably i'm not not i don't say irretrievable but you've had 10 years you've had 10 years pursuing a strategy I cannot understand how I can read people in the newspapers talk about what a good job Michal Martin has done for Fianna Fáil. I don't understand that. If he had stood still, if he had done nothing, Fianna Fáil should be on an unadjusted poll somewhere between around, they should be at 17 or 20%. Got about 22 in the last election. In the last election, yeah. So he, he brought them up after a fairly rocky period 
Although actually in the election before that he had brought them up higher, then he lost seats and that was still somehow a victory. No, 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 I'm sorry to be picky, Gary, but you say he brought them up. No, I, 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 he didn't. If anything, I would say he kept them down too. After, after a 17% result in 2011, and understanding the capacity of the Irish voter to forgive and forget, or at least to forget, you would have expected that there was a significant number of Fianna Fáil voters who, I, who in 2011 who simply didn't vote. They couldn't bring themselves to vote for someone else, but they weren't bloody well going to vote for that crowd. By the time you got, you got to the 2000, you got, you got five years down the line, those voters would have, you would have expected some of them to be coming back to Fianna Fáil. By the time you came to two elections later, you would have expected that they would have been in a position to attract some other voters even. I'm, I'm going to disagree with you there. I, I don't think this is Michal Martin's fault. I think Michal Martin has been a terrible leader of Fianna Fáil. I don't actually know what the point of voting for Fianna Fáil is at this point. Uh, at, at all. But here's the thing, Michael. Fin- Michal Martin has been a horrendously weak leader who basically looks like during the government negotiations in order to secure his turn as Taoiseach basically shanghaied Fianna Fáil ministers into a series of departments which were never going to work out well and coincidentally because the pandemic ended up working incredibly unwell but I mean no one could have foreseen that happening at that time but after a while if you let him remain in place what he does then becomes the responsibility of the party as a whole and of the people who could have replaced him and at this point if he's shit and you let him stay there well then it's your fault he is not going to go himself you let him go to this situation you could have stopped him you didn't for whatever reason because it was difficult or because you didn't think you could and now you're all in this together and that's that's as a collective they're behaving like a duck that's been hit on the head with a brick and now they have the, the great problem of, well, now you've got Sinn Féin rising as well. And Sinn Féin get into government once. You have two options. One, their voters realise that actually they're not that different to the rest of them and they desert them. Or two, it normalises them. And now they're just a part of the political landscape. And I would suspect it'll be a combination of those two. And if that's the case, and we go from a two-party state to effectively a three-party state, or two and a bit to three and a bit, what is the fucking point of Fianna Fáil? Well, what is the point of Fianna Fáil? That is exactly the question. Most of my life, one of the, the, the joke in Irish politics was, a child says to his father, Daddy, what's Fine Gael for? And the answer historically was, Fine Gael is for not being Fianna Fáil. Nobody knew precisely what Fine Gael was for, but we knew it was fundamentally for not being Fianna Fáil. What is Fianna Fáil for? We talked before about this realignment, and this realignment which is global. It's, not, it's happening all over Europe. It's happening in the United States, it's happening all over the democratic world, the Western world. And one of the things, the curious things, has been this breakdown in the connection between uh, right-wing economics and social conservatives, that social conservatives were now drifting off and they're becoming more interested in left-wing economics and so on and so forth. And this has been commented on, and we've seen it in Hungary, we've seen it in Poland, we've seen it all over the world. We've seen it in Italy, we've seen it in the United States. We've seen it in Britain. Now, what we are seeing is the rise of socially conservative, economically interventionist parties with a nationalist element to them. Nationalist well, populist element. What being called conservative parties? Well, no, Gary, which would traditionally have been called Fianna Fáil. That is exactly a description of Fianna Fáil. And at, at the same time, 
the constant, one of the most constant things that's been happening in European politics has been the decline of the social of the power of social democratic parties, parties that had been massively important and dominant in places like the SPD in Germany, the, in Holland, in France, the social, the, the social, even more than the traditional conservative parties, the Christian democratic parties, the social the social democrat parties have been in crisis, right? So in the middle, right at the moment when this great realignment seems to be picking up speed. Michal Martin decides we're going to stop being a, a Republican nationalist, economically left of centre, centre, socially conservative populist party, and we're going to become social democrats. And to everybody's amazement and astonishment, it hasn't been a huge electoral success. Well, wow. If you want, they're losing votes to the left and to the right. They're losing votes to the, I would say, to the right of the Sinn Féin voters on the right of Sinn Féin, socially moderately conservative but you know, economically interventionist but nationalist republican uh, also uh, style voters and then on and then you have the mass the growth of this independent vote across uh, uh, all across the Leinster but particularly in Munster and, and in Collop Dunster which are large bunches of what they call the genetic phenophile gene pool those votes their votes they're phenophile votes they should be phenophilers they're not no He's, he has sold this idea, or his advisors and his people, I don't know if he's sold the idea that the place where Fianna Fáil was is, there, is not a place where there are votes. But there are votes. They're patently, obviously, votes. There are lots. But they've abandoned them, and they've decided to become a social democratic party when social democracy ain't selling, it ain't selling fish fingers anymore. You can say, oh, social democrats are on six, they're up one. Wow. Yeah, that would be such a success. I think you're right. Part of what you're selling depends on you know what people are buying. But the other thing is... is you should also consider not what just what people are buying but what will they buy from you yeah and i think that may have been something that finifal could have thought a bit longer about not just can we rebrand as this lovely wonderful thing but will the people who like that sort of thing buy it from us that's a very good point that is a very good point and i think this the, the truth of that is the answer is no so I, I can absolutely see a strategic meeting where someone accurately pointed out where Irish people were and all of these wonderful things with pinpoint accuracy. And then the plan just failed to launch because they didn't take into account, well, how do we fit into that? What about what exists already? Are liberal Finnegale voters, are social democrat voters, are labour voters going to be disposed to vote for Fianna Fáil? If we offer them something like that, I think the answer is no. They have enough other options. The last thing they're going to do is vote for a bunch of muck savages like Fianna Fáil are. There is a deeply ingrained cultural dis dislike of Fianna Fáil and Fianna Fáil politics amongst a certain political group in this country. And they're just not going to vote for them. Not in numbers, anyway. I, I think they're... Vote if they got rid of Martin tomorrow and elected Emil O'Keeve, would it make a difference? Maybe it would. But you know what? At this stage, I think they have to throw the dice. They have to decide to be something. Right now, I don't know what the hell they're for. No, I don't think anyone does. And it's hard to see what can actually be done to them. And I would be interested to see if there is, in certain parts of Fianna Fáil's hierarchy, an assumption that it's less about growing the party that they've given up on the idea of every person is a natural Fianna Fáil uh, voter. It's just a case of, you know, 
reminding them of that in the right way. And I've gone into a sort of, our job is to manage the the decline. Manage the, yeah, they're sort of like British civil servants in, in the 20th century, managing the, managing the decline of the empire. I would be curious, because I'd say there are some, and some I've talked to have, they haven't said it, but you kind of get the sense from talking to them. And I'd be curious you know, how widespread that is. Anyway, we'll see. We shall see, we shall see, we shall see, if we're left to see. We will be back on Wednesday with all of the things we were meant to talk about today and couldn't fit in because we went on a long and meandering descriptive uh, exercise about what exactly constituted the far right and far left and what really are right and left anyway. Well, Gary, you know, you have to have fun. That's why the listeners listen. If you don't give them a bit of comedy, they won't come back. It reminds me of, uh, here's some trivia for the listener who's gotten to the end of this quite long episode. Early in the podcast, I and Michael, we recorded something like four hours of what is conservatism <laughs> and what is it to be right wing versus left wing. Oh, God. In excruciating. It would have been horrible to listen to. Yeah, and we were saved yeah. from ever having to publish it because the microphones desynced something like 40 minutes into it because microphones have internal clocks and if you talk for a great length of time and they're not the same type of microphone the the they can actually drift a bit and it can be quite a problem but uh, other than that we would have released that monstrosity onto the world and there were parts of it that were quite interesting the only problem was you know getting to those parts and then getting to the next part it was four hours long and it wasn't finished Oh, like that that could have been like twelve or sixteen hours <laughs> long at the end of it. It was it was nightmarish. I just remember sitting in my kitchen and just being like, I don't want to do this anymore. This is horrible. So there for for getting to the end of this incredibly long episode, there is some there is some TRSI trivia for you. Anyway, we promise if you come back on Wednesday it won't be four hours long. All the best. <laughs>